I'd like to talk to you all tonight about the four foundations of mindfulness. And if you, um, if you know something about the traditions taught here at Spirit Rock, this uh, philosophy and psychology and practice offered by the Buddha um, is very central to his path of liberation, his path of awakening, his path to end suffering. And I'd like to come at it from a slightly different angle. Um, there's the classic material and walking through that, and that's worth studying. But I wanted to kind of come at it from a sense of um, what it's like to practice that for some time and sort of describe more how that practice develops for people. Um, and also how you can do this practice, not just on retreat or not just sitting, but how you can do it in your everyday life <clears throat> and even in very challenging circumstances. So there are uh, four foundations of mindfulness. That means that there are four places the Buddha asked us to develop our awareness and not just to think about and reflect about life, but to see in real time what's happening moment by moment. And so three of the four foundations of mindfulness are here in this chart. That's the M, the E, and the plus minus at the center of the chart. I guess one thing to say before going too deeply into this, that um, this chart uh, has two sides, and it's up to you to decide which one's more valuable. Uh, if this gets too complex, and there are times I hate this map, um, and I'm the one who made it, but there are times I can't stand it, and I take a breath and look at this side, or just put it away. So if that happens to you tonight, please uh, save yourselves <laughs> and uh, get, keep your mind at ease. But coming into the four foundations of mindfulness, they're basically, uh, you drop into any experience you're having, and the first place the Buddha asked us to put our attention was into body sensations, into, into the direct awareness of what it's like to be in a body, to have a body. And so you can do that by following the breath. That's very common, the breath meditation. You can do that just by feeling what happens sensorily inside the body, feeling the play of warmth and cool, feeling the weight in the body versus uh, parts of your body that are light, parts of your body that are heavy, parts of your body that are uh, strong and firm like the bone, and parts of your body that feel soft like the tissue. And so it's not just thinking that you have a body, you're not looking at it from the outside, coming within the body and feeling the play of sensations. So that's the, these are two of the big um, body meditations. There are other reflections given in the classic talk, but mostly we come back to these two, breathing meditation, which is feeling the breath, or coming into the whole body and feeling sensations as you go through it. That's the first foundation of mindfulness, coming in to see the body is in play. It's constantly changing. No sensation um, lasts all that long, even though it might be followed by a very similar sensation. But when you come into it, you can begin to see the ever-changing nature inside the body itself. Later on, the talk that is expanded, where you do that with any experience you're having. So we could do that with the crickets outside. We could do that with people changing their posture and hearing their chairs creak. So that would be hearing. We can do it visually, that the visual field is changing. We can do that with taste. 
We can do that with um, aroma. So we can do that at any of the sense doors. We can pay attention to what's happening there and see that they're changing. It also happens with the, um, the play of thought and how many types of thoughts that will come. And the mind uh, never ceases to come up with creative things to think about. And <clears throat> when I was a monk in Burma, that was a year of not a lot of input, but it, it, it only came up with more creative things. I mean, it just would not stop entertaining me with new thoughts, new fantasies, new capacities, new dreams, new memories, da 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 It just wouldn't stop. I was amazed that this thing could not stop. <laughs> um, and so after a year, I saw that I was actually not going to make it end thinking. Um, I had come to terms with it, but I definitely went with the belief that I could actually grind this thing to a halt and then have choice over how much thinking would happen, but uh, hardly made a dent. So thinking happens. And that's, <clears throat> that's very basic and elemental experiences, the five senses plus the play of thought and concept, inner images, inner sounds. And then we can glom all those together to make larger experiences. So they're sitting in the hall right now. This is what this E could stand for, experience. E stands for experience. It's sitting here and now listening to a talk. Okay, so there's many senses happening at once pulled together into this experience. There's the drive here and the drive back. There's arriving at home. There's work. There's uh, meeting with friends. There's getting involved in conflicts. There's traveling. There's different foods to eat. There's many experiences you can have. So this E in the center of the map here is any experience you have from the moment you're born to the moment you die. And any experience anybody is having fits into this E category. So it's quite large. Any experience. The Buddha wanted us to know what is happening right now. Not so much about what we think is going to happen tomorrow, not so much what we think happened yesterday, but what is happening right now. And you, you start with a large experience, like listening to a talk. And then with mindfulness, when it becomes a little bit more um, sharp, you can see it's made up of little tiny experiences that build into a big experience. So that's, a, that's one of the progressions, is breaking it down into its little experiences. That's the E. That's one foundation of the four, is looking at your direct experience. Then the other foundation of mindfulness coming in is whether you find that experience pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. This is very basic, um, very core Buddhist psychology. Every experience you have will either be fairly neutral. You couldn't say whether it was pleasant or unpleasant, so it's a kind of a neutral quality. It might be a pleasant experience or it might be an unpleasant experience, and both of those to varying degrees, very unpleasant, mildly unpleasant, very pleasurable, um, mildly pleasurable. He wanted us to look at that quality because that's where we really get hung up. And if you're getting hung up struggling with experience, if you're getting uh, hung up being um, at war with your experience or suffering from your experience, one of the first places you could look at is whether that experience is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And I'll go into a little bit how we can even struggle around present pleasant experiences. It's not just unpleasant experiences. And that we don't have to um, struggle. It's not a given that we have to struggle with unpleasant experiences. You can meet them. Um, so that's what he asked us to do. Meet our experiences, whether they're pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So it's, a, it's an important place to look at direct experience. I'm calling that preferences. The Pali word is Vedana. I don't think we've translated it well into English yet, but 
preferences is where I'm going to go with that. And then another important, um, that's the second foundation, this Vedana, the Pali word is whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, your experience. And then the third foundation of mindfulness is looking at the mind itself. And that when they say mind, they mean both what we would consider the mind, uh, maybe more of our cognitive capacity, but also looking at the full play of emotion, what emotions are happening moment by moment. He wanted us to develop our capacity to know when anger is arising, when it's beginning, when it's lasting, and when it's fading. He wanted us to know when contentment is beginning and lasting and when it fades. He wanted us to know this for happiness. He wanted us to know this for irritation. He wanted us to know when we're easily focused and when we're easily distracted. Um, that's a whole other category. And I hope I'm not like overwhelming you with too many things that he asked you to be mindful of, but um, <clears throat> that's really where things begin to open up into whether you're going to be suffering or not. So the first one is just knowing what experience you're having, knowing whether that experience is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And then noti noticing the quality of mind you have in that moment. Because a lot of the suffering you'll create for yourself won't be in the experience. It won't be whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. It'll be the state of your mind when that's happening. It'll be the state of your heart when that's happening. And that's really what generates uh, dissatisfaction and struggle and frustration with life from his point of view. Most of us will try to struggle with the E. Most of us will try to work out the experiences we're having so that we get as many pluses as possible, as many pluses in a row. And if you think about winning the lottery, most of what people think about doing after they win the lottery is just plussing their life as much as possible. And for some people, that's yachts and sailing around the world. Other people, that's mansions and all the food they want to eat. Other people, it's cars. Other people, it's you know, unending tango lessons. Whatever your thing is that would give you this unending plus. And then you gotta, and it gets complicated when you really, when you play it out. Okay, that's good for a week, it's good for a month, but how do you really only have pluses? And the thing is, if you look at it, you can't. You can definitely make choices that will give you more pleasant experiences, and you should. But if your strategy for happiness, strategy for uh, well-being is based on whether you ha are having pleasant experiences, you will be disappointed. And this is his first noble truth, that no matter what you do, Pleasant experiences happen, but they don't last. They're worth having, but they don't last. And so you cannot maintain happiness in life if it means just having pleasant experiences. And if you don't know how to deal with unpleasant experiences, you will suffer. So, <laughs> whoa, that's heavy. Um, so <clears throat> that's his personal truth, that um, there is unpleasant experiences and you have to learn to cope with that or you will not you won't be that happy in life if you don't know how to deal with unpleasant experiences and if you don't know how to enjoy pleasant experiences even though they're temporary when you cling to them that also will cause suffering so that was one of his deep insights but all of that doesn't hinge on the experience you're having and it doesn't hinge on whether it's a pleasant experience that you're attached to or an unpleasant experience you're struggling with. It comes down to the quality of your mind moment by moment, because the mind is really where you are struggling. The mind is where you are clinging. The mind is where you are free. 
and meeting our experiences. So <clears throat> this is, again, very core, um, central Buddhist psychology, understanding what's happening moment by moment, knowing whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, and knowing the state of your mind and heart in those moments. Okay? So that's the, uh, that's the call. That's the path. The fourth foundation of mindfulness is looking at not just moment-by-moment -moment experiences, but how patterns play out. So, possibly, um, well, okay, here's a course example, but possibly the first time you try uh, something very addictive, it might be pleasant. So you say, where's the harm in that? If I just look at this one moment, this is a good thing. You actually have to get wise about how things play out over time. And this is where these two cycles come in, these two ovals. They are the fourth foundation of mindfulness. It's the patterns that play out moment by moment and how we construct our own freedom, how we experience that and can develop it, cultivate it, or how we construct our own suffering, how we add suffering to what's already unpleasant. So that's what we'll uh, explore next. The upper cycle, <clears throat> the cycle of uh, increasing well-being, is that the first thing we do, and this is the path of mindfulness, is that we learn to, before we respond, before we do anything about what's happening, we make sure that we've received the experience. And so a lot of mindfulness practice is to put a little bit of a gap between the stimulus and the response, between what's happening and what you do about it. And just that alone can end a lot of reactivity, compulsive reactivity, making, uh, increasing your capacity to put a little bit of a pause between what's happening and then how you respond. So this is the first thing. You receive experiences just as they are. If it's pleasant, you receive the pleasure of it to the degree that it's actually pleasant. And that's what you receive. If it's unpleasant, you receive that unpleasant experience before you move to shift, like say the pain in your back while sitting or pain in your knee or your shoulders. With mindfulness, we increase our capacity to be with unpleasant experiences just so we're not compulsively responding too quickly. And then later on, once you are receiving, you can adjust as you want, but it's not a driven compulsive habit. When you stay with something long enough, and this receptive quality, you open up to the next stage, which is intimacy. And in intimacy, <clears throat> I'm using that word because that's what it feels like when you cross over from a strategy to manipulate your experiences to sinking into allowing them to beginning to appreciate them just as they are. And these open, these moments begin randomly um, Maybe with sunsets, and maybe with a dog on a beach, and maybe with loved ones and friends, and maybe in quiet rooms sitting and meditating. But then you can actually open these windows anywhere. You can open them in daily life if you're willing to receive the experience you're having. Stay with it long enough and open up to intimacy. This is what's happening, so I'm not going to struggle with it. Again, this is a development of mindfulness. I know some people, when they hear this, um, at least this one person recently said, um, that she feels like uh, people are taking advantage of her, so she doesn't really want to receive that. She doesn't really want to become more intimate with people who are taking advantage of her. And what you need to do there is actually be intimate with what's happening. I'm being taken advantage of. This is what's happening. This is what was done. This is how I responded. You have to open up intimacy 
internal intimacy and then some external intimacy to understand what's going on before you respond. And then that response can be constructive. What's challenging about developing this type of intimacy for many people is why you would receive an unpleasant experience. And so one example for that, I mean two come to mind. One time my, um, my appendix was just about to burst and it was very painful. And the pain grew and grew and grew and grew. And then I had to go to the hospital and um, my friends rallied around me, but it was really painful. And so I tried to be a good meditator and open up to it. <laughs> and <clears throat> it was like someone was stabbing a, a knife in my belly and twisting it. Um, and there's only so much I could open up to before I was just like, okay, this has to end. I can't, I can't take any more of it. But I did go to the hospital. I didn't just sort of sit there mindfully letting myself die. I, <laughs> I did respond, but I opened up to this. And then this thing happened where I, once they began treating me, I realized I wasn't going to die. Um, it brought such an appreciation for this body and the fact that it, I take it for granted, but it doesn't have to keep going. And so when it does keep going, I'm pretty in awe of it. And I don't do much for this body. I exercise it, I brush the teeth, I wash it every now and then. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> um, it does a phenomenal job. Billions and billions and billions of cells clicking along. And every now and then, something like that unpleasant experience can happen. And that intimacy, opening up to it, came into a much, uh, for a long time, months afterwards, I held my body in such a different place. So going from kind of taking it for granted through uh, something that was painful, and then that actually opened up to intimacy back into the body. So that's how unpleasant things, when they come sometimes, they seem like bad news. And if you can actually un open to them skillfully, they can transform into something that's quite beautiful. Same thing happened, I was working in a, um, in a hospice ward. And so people were coming with uh, critical illnesses and in some period of time probably were going to die. So when I first began that, that was overwhelming. That was hard and I was nervous about it. Um, and then as I opened to intimacy, what it was like to be on the hospice ward, Again, it came around to make life so beautifully precious. And if I could be with somebody, sometimes the first couple of people, they, they showed me what it was like to be conscious when dying. And they were, they were my teachers in that. And then later on, I was comfortable enough to hold other people who were afraid during that process and give them some ease during that process. And again, it just made life so incredibly holy to be connected there. But it was around grief and loss. So the doorway was challenging, but passing through it was beautiful. And there are other moments where the intimacy with life opens up. And this is where being present is no longer challenging. It feel, you feel blessed to be that present with what's happening. If it's neutral, just feeling one breath and being content with it, when that intimacy opens up with just the breathing process, you don't have to work that hard to be present. You're not fighting other thoughts. It feels um, like you're drawn into the experience. You, the receiving part is where you're working at it. And the intimacy is where the experience itself pulls you into it. And it's self-validating to be present. If you stabilize this intimacy enough, you can then begin to ask, what is it that's really supporting this opening of intimacy? What's really, what's really opening here? Why is this moment more intimate than another? 
And the Buddha's in this, uh, <clears throat> insight to that was that we don't have a rigid self there. We don't have a self that's cut off or contracted. And so life is, we're able to touch life. T life touches us. And then we, we end up changing with life because it's touched us in that moment. An example might be listening to music. And if it's background music, you're not really that intimate with it. But when you open up to music, uh, every note can begin to cause a different emotion. Every note can kind of lift you a little bit and you're drawn into the music. It's the same with dancing. When you're dancing and you're first learning, it's kind of you know, going through the steps. But then when you get into the dance, uh, it carries you through. And what, what supports that opening of intimacy is that your self is not so rigidly defined. So this is where we get into selflessness. And selflessness is too, it's too negative or it's too empty of the fact that it feels very full, but there's just nothing rigid in that. You can be very uh, adaptable, very changing moment by moment, very touched by moments. So rather than saying no self or non-self, um, I'm putting forth a fluid self, a fluid relationship to self. And because of the fluidity and adaptability and this intimacy, you become quite responsive. You care about your environment. You care about what you're connecting to. And so maybe the first part of developing mindfulness has this sort of um, receptive and, and non-action non mode because you're kind of you're building intimacy. But once that gets established, then you get to be fully responsive. And this is what I learned with the socially engaged Buddhism. Being in the shelters, I used to work for, um, in these intensive crisis shelters. And after a retreat, I would be walking into the shelter after a 10-day meditation retreat. And I couldn't believe I was going to walk in there without more ego armor on. And I saw myself trying to like brace myself, like it's way intense. And I just came off this retreat and I'm intimate with life and I see a butterfly and I want to cry. And I was like, I can't walk into that shelter. I mean, that's so intense, but I couldn't put myself back together, luckily. Then I got to experience what it was like to be in the same shelter and actually feel what was going on. And because of that, <clears throat> I would walk into the shelter and I would meet somebody and I'd actually be able to look in their eyes. And this would be a homeless kid who hadn't seen a safe adult in years. The police were frustrated with them. Their parents were frustrated with them. The other shelter care workers were usually burnt out. They were somewhat frustrated with them. So I might have been the first adult that they'd seen in years who actually took the time to look them in the eye and, to, and get to know them, get to know their name, and their whole body language would relax. And then within minutes, they'd be telling me things really important to them. And pretty quickly, I learned that their favorite person in their, in their family structure was their aunt. And I was like, oh, well, maybe we can call her. And then we could actually find solutions very quickly. But if I walked in there with more of the ego armor, the kid often would brace a little bit against my ego and then we'd tussle a little bit, and he's like, are you going to be one of those people who just pushes me around because I've been pushed around a lot? It's like, well, yeah, because i got to be in control here, so I'm going to push you around for a little bit just to establish I can control you. Well-intentioned, but very struggling. And then it would take days for them to soften and trust me before they tell me about something as touching to them that they had this favorite aunt that they trusted. And so I started noticing things moved very beautifully in that. So you can suddenly be very responsive, very caring, very proactive when you're willing to be fluid, adaptable, and intimate with life. And this, this feeds on itself. 
this cycle can keep going. So you're intimate in one moment, then you're intimate in the next. And things open up around that. If you've done a lot of, a lot of meditation retreats, they, um, they have this acronym RAIN for uh, how to meet difficult experiences. And the R is for um, recognize or receive the experience. The A in RAIN is for acceptance. So you recognize what's happening, you accept it. The I can be intimacy or investigation. So you really try to like come into what's happening and understand it, not intellectually, but experientially. Feel all the elements that are happening. And then the N in RAIN is just to not identify, which means don't contract around what's happening. Connect to it, but don't form a tight story about what you think is happening. And then flow with experience. And so the first part of mindfulness is recognizing where this already happens, creating conditions where it's more likely to happen, and then you kind of can uh, bathe yourself in a cycle like this. And maybe, uh, again, for me, I'm using an example that anytime I walk on the beach, I'm usually going to be close to this cycle. From where I start to where I end, I'm going to be in a much better place. It's easier to be intimate with the waves and sunsets and spaciousness of it all. You add a dog and a ball to that picture, and I'm, I'm floating. So it's very intimate. The dog really pulls me in. The ball keeps me from just spacing out. And so that play is very fun. Kids also on a beach, great. Um, adults, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're good too. <clears throat> um, so anyways, cultivating this sense of mindfulness and extending your range so that you can actually receive greater and greater things and be intimate with greater and greater things. Be fluid and adaptable as you go along. What happens in the lower cycle is how we construct our own suffering. You can take the same experience, whether it's pleasant or pleasant, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, and rather than receive it and open intimacy, you we often find some way of struggling with it. And so unconsciously done, this is how we perpetuate our own dissatisfaction. And we blame it on the experience. But as I've seen, there really isn't an experience yet that had to be suffering. It might have been unpleasant, but it doesn't have to be suffering. That's something we add to the realities in life. So the way we begin suffering is some form of resistance. Something's happening and we can't be satisfied with it. We're unwilling to receive it. We're unwilling to be intimate with what's happening. What's shocking about this one is why we would do that around pleasant experiences. Like, why would you struggle with pleasant experiences? It seems like that would be the easy one. But we do struggle a lot with pleasant experiences. Um, wanting something that you can't have yet, or you're not sure you're going to get, it's a, it's a pleasant possibility, but we begin to struggle around it. We get quite agitated around the pleasure we think we're going to have. We long for pleasures that have happened in the past, and we miss them. That's another place. We can't just let it have happened and then pass and enjoy the memory. There's this longing to return to it, and that's a type of resistance. It's not here now, and I wish it was. Or it's not coming fast enough, the thing I'm anticipating. And then there's just trying to manage pleasure when it's arisen, and it's funny that that takes some management. Uh, 
my, when I was a, a monk in the second monastery, um, my dad sent me a pound of M&Ms. <clears throat> and I hadn't had chocolate, especially good chocolate, in a long time. And so I got this pound of M&Ms. I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh, you knew what to send me. That's great. And I, my dad's the hero. And so much love for him. And this pound of M&Ms. And then and I was actually, it, it started off with some good equanimity, some good balance. Like, oh, I could... Eat, you know, I could eat one a day and just enjoy the pleasure. That would be wonderful. And like a bag of M&Ms, that's almost like three years worth of pleasure. And I was like, oh, I could milk this forever. That's great. Or I could be so generous. Yeah, I mean, not, not get a, the pleasure out of my taste buds, but like, look what a monk I am. I have this bag, but I'm going to give it to all the other monks and nuns. Won't that be wonderful? I played out that fantasy. And I had one just to like, Test the product. <laughs> and <clears throat> it was pleasant, but you know, I was actually very present for it. So rather than eating an M&M and thinking about something else, I ate it. I was like, yeah, that's definitely sweet. Yeah, and there's the chocolate. And there's that film on my teeth. Wow, that wasn't part of the picture. Right? And then instantly I wanted to get another one in there to override the relationship to this like sugar after thing in my mouth. And I was like, so this compulsion started. It's like, no, 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 one a day, one a day. So now I have to sit there dealing with the sugar in my mouth and the film, looking at this bag. It's so easy to like escape this, this pleasure by having another one. And I was like, I have to wait 23 hours and 55 minutes. And I sat there, and it's like these beads of sweat starting to come down. I was like, ah, oh, this torture bag of M&Ms. like, God, my father cursed me. Now what do I do? Like, oh, I'll go back to fantasy too. I'll get rid of the M&Ms. And... But it's no longer generosity at that point. I'm like ditching these M&Ms so I don't have to struggle with them. It's like, well, let's see if I can recover. No, I can't get there. It's no longer that generous because I want to get rid of the problem. So I was like, I'll sit with it. I sit with them. It's torture. It's like, I want them. I want them. I want them. And as I sit there, it's like, God, oh, this freaking pleasure is driving me crazy. And I was like, Dad, why, why a pound? Like a little bag of M&Ms would have been perfect. You give a month a little bag of M&Ms, not a pound. I don't know what to do with this. I'm sitting in silence, I'm up in this cabin, now I gotta like drag this M&Ms all around, I'm gonna be interrupting other people, sitting with their meditation quiet, I'm gonna knock on the door and then I'm gonna curse them with M&Ms. I'll give it to the lay people, I'm just getting rid of it at this point. And like this storm happened in my mind. And at some point, I just started to break and I could feel myself giving ground. It's like, oh my God, I'm breaking over a pound of M&Ms. I'm here for full-blown enlightenment, ready to meet every corner of my mind. I'm going to go down embarrassingly on a pound of M&Ms. Brutal. And at some point, I just felt myself giving ground and my resolves were cracking. And with such shame, I reached into the bag and grabbed a whole handful and put it in my mouth and chewed it. It wasn't pleasant. It was like, yeah, it's sweet, but there's so much shame at this point. And yeah, there's chocolate, but it's gone so quickly. And oh, now the film in my mouth is even stronger. And it's coating my tongue. And yeah, another handful. And I was like, and I was like there is no, nothing left in me at this point. I'm going to eat the entire bag. And my stomach starts to feel sick. And I was like, oh, I'm eating every bag. I had no resolve of taking these vows. I'm supposed to be like an exemplary to humanity. And I'm just like eating M&Ms. And they do melt in your hand in Burma because it's so hot. And it's like crawling my hand. And, like, ah. and I just ended up feeling so like 
wasted by it, but it, I learned a lot from it. So that's like, okay, I learned something, but I got dragged down into a lot of suffering over pleasure. But, you know, it's the same thing, like, ooh, someone attractive, that's kind of great, like, but they didn't look at me, oh, uh, uh. and all of a sudden, like, this lift of feeling like, this is fun, it's like, all of a sudden your ego's at stake, and you could be crushed or made by whether this person gives you eye contact or not, and so we do struggle over pleasure, we do resist pleasure, we have, we have these mechanisms of trying to manage it. Um, if the resistance, and the resistance is sort of an elastic relationship, to it. There's some struggle going on, but you can kind of, you have some perspective. It's that kind of like, oh, I know what's happening. It's not pleasant, but I'm struggling with this. But if the resistance builds, <clears throat> the next thing happens. And that's where we get into this entrenched state where the resistance is no longer an active struggle. You just dig in. You dig in with your views on the world. You dig in with your sense of what's right and wrong. And you take stances. And so, uh, you can do this, say, with fear. So fear comes up, and I'm like, oh, I'm having some fear. I don't know if what I'm afraid of is true or not, but I'm definitely afraid. And then the fear builds, and it's like, okay, this is a bad situation. That's dangerous, and i got to do something about it. And it could be that um, you're misunderstanding the circumstance, but fear takes over at that point and becomes your worldview. And everything you see at that point, you're seeing through fear. Same thing with anger, same thing with grief. Um, I went through a breakup process with someone I love very dearly, and for a long time, I knew I was just in the cloud of grief, and everything was just seen through grief. And I like, I know this won't last, but it feels like eternity. And it went on day after day, and I was like, God, I just feel like I'm lost in this grief. I can't quite remember what's good about loving someone because it leads to this well of grief. And then it did pass, but when I was in it, I couldn't see out of it. And I had to have talked to friends and they reminded me that it was a temporary state and it was helpful. <clears throat> but the resistance and struggle that we have gets entrenched. And this is where we take stances on life and we kind of back ourselves up and we develop views and opinions to back our beliefs that are there to negotiate pleasure, displeasure, defend our ego structures. We get uh, locked in. We build these trenches. We build walls and we build trenches in fortifications against reality to try to manage reality, block reality, or hold on to a part of reality that's a shifting experience. Often this word is clinging. So in this map, <clears throat> more generally, we talk about clinging, but it's the same entrenchment, whether it's grief or fear or anger, loneliness. When you know that it's a temporary experience, you can be intimate with it. You can be intimate with loneliness. And it's quite beautiful. You can be intimate with anger and feel the, uh, the righteousness, but not be blinded by it. So, again, you don't have to um, lock down just because of the emotion you're having. But when you get lost in what's coming up, that getting lost is this entrenchment. And if you look at what's the mortar behind the bricks of the walls you're building, it's the next stage. It's something about a rigid self. <clears throat> We're so complex that we often want to simplify ourselves by making something static out of something dynamic. So, I am this is an easier thing to work with than sometimes I'm like this and sometimes I'm not. Well, then who am I in that? Sometimes I'm, I'm funny and sometimes I'm not funny. Sometimes public speaking is great and sometimes it's really unnerving. Who's the me in that? And which one am I going to get next time? I don't know. And so out of that anxiety, it's just like, well, let's just like, 
get good at something and like nail it down. I want every talk to be like the one I gave on, you know, a year ago because that I nailed it. So I want, how can I be that guy more often? But that's like a binding of an experience or getting rigid to brace yourself against experiences. I don't want that to happen again. I don't want to be that person again. That was really unpleasant. So I got to work really hard to not have that happen again. It's a rigid self and it, it's, you're trying to control and protect yourself by um, fortifying your sense of self. The mirror opposite, I mean, the opposite of this that is still in this category is a sort of a collapsed sense of self. It's not rigid, but it's just sort of blown away. It's kind of um, listless. And so it doesn't feel so rigid. It's like, yeah, whatever. I, I don't know. I give up. <clears throat> we wouldn't necessarily call that rigid, so the word doesn't work so well there. But that's still a relationship to self. There's something about self in that, in that equation that's the core of what holds us in this suffering. We get lost in how we're viewing ourselves, how we're viewing our possessions, how we're viewing, viewing our relationship to the world. One truth about the world is that it's an ever-changing experience. <clears throat> and so actually, there aren't really even nouns. I mean, there are nouns because whatever, but um, <clears throat> this cup is an ever-changing experience. One, it's mostly empty space, and the matter that is in here is crackling little bits of potential energy. If you, if you look closely, you can't even find anything static in this cup, but it looks static. So we get away with calling it static. But there was a time that this cup didn't exist, and there'll be a time this cup doesn't exist. It will break at some point. So this cup is in process. Out of sense of simplicity, we want to refer to it like it's static, and we get away with it until it breaks. And then what happened to our static notion? It doesn't fit anymore. So if you're attached to the static notion, you're setting yourself up for frustration, getting lost when it changes. But really, <clears throat> we're, everything should be really verbs. I mean, this cup is cupping. This matter, this energy <laughs> is cupping right now. And the warmth from the tea is warming right now. And right now, I'm talking right now. This is, I'm templing. <laughs> and you're getting templed. <clears throat> um, Everything's in process, and we try to simplify things by referring to things as static. And that's where we, we're not in aligned with reality when we do that. If we really invest in static identities, static possessions, um, static existence, we'll be betrayed by that. And then we'll be lost if we had a lot of investment in that. But if you allow things to be fluid, this cup is perfectly fluid. All the matter in it is constantly changing. It was warm and it's cooling down as the tea gets colder. This cup is not stressing. I'm not attached to it getting colder, so I'm not stressing. I can be fluid. I have a fluid relationship to what's happening here. So this cup can cause me the suffering. But if I needed it to be hot and it wasn't, and I couldn't quite open to that, then I would be adding suffering to a natural process that this cup should be cooling. This cup is very lawful. It's cooling. It's in perfect alignment with reality. I step out of alignment reality when I need it to be other than it is. And that's when we come out into the next thing, when actions flow out of this entrenchment, struggle, and when you are, have a tight relationship, trying to rigidify yourself to protect yourself, the actions that come out of that are reactive. You react against what's happening. 
react against pleasure, the pleasure that's there. You try to squeeze more out of it. You react against unpleasant experiences. There's a, there's a detachment, an unhealthy det detachment in, say, depression. That's another reactivity. And this can feed in on itself. So I have a bad phone call where I get reactive, hang up the phone, and I, somebody walks in, I'm in a bad mood, I can't really meet them. That's also kind of frustrating. If I don't actually drop in to receive what's happening, if they don't help me talk, they don't help talk me through that experience, that'll be unpleasant. And then I'll walk outside and I'll meet another experience, that will be unpleasant. <clears throat> you can stay in this reactive mode and drive it all day long. And it pops when you're willing to feel life again. So you can pop it yourself, or usually experiences change, things change, and eventually you let go. But you can be proactive about that. So that's, <clears throat> that's the, uh, the suffering cycle when it's done to us, or what we do to ourselves unconsciously. To extend the range of mindfulness so that you are ever increasingly free and fewer and fewer experiences can cause you suffering, you have to be able to receive and be intimate with more of the life you're having. Not put so much effort into controlling experiences, but more on developing the mind and heart so they can meet more and more of the life you actually have. And bit by bit, you gain ground. Ground you lost to reactivity. Ground you lost to fear or anger. Ground in your own life that you became numb to. You learn to receive it and be intimate and allow your identity to shift as needed to reclaim that part of your life. Very sadly, my, um, <clears throat> my family's going through a, a cycle right now where there's a lot of fighting <clears throat> and people have just called it quits. So there's a big division. And I know it's temporary, um, but it's still painful to watch. There will come a point where they're going to go back into feeling each other. They're gonna go back into wanting to be connected and apologizing. Um, but right now, the wall, they're just very entrenched in their points of view. They're willing to fight, and they've dug in, and they got exhausted, and now they've broken off. And it's not skillful taking a step back and, and having a breath. It's just re reactivity, feeding itself on and on. <clears throat> the big part of awakening is to be mindful where you haven't been mindful before. And that means opening your intimacy, opening this capacity where before you would have been reactive or shut down. So that for some people that means opening up to love that's available, but it was, it, it was too tender to receive love. So that's where you have to extend your mindfulness, be intimate with somebody offering you love and what that means for you and what that would mean to your ego structure to receive love and have your ego structure melt some into a more fluid state because someone is loving you, that, that's challenging for many people to fully receive the love that's available, to fully offer the love that they feel and how vulnerable that makes you, that you can love somebody and not tell them or not express it, or you can rush up and dump it all over them because you don't know how to be there with it. But can you actually love somebody, hold it, be intimate with it, feel your own self be lifted by it, and then offer it to somebody. You know, that's one expansion into something beautiful that we find challenging. But we also have to extend into places that are unpleasant. And that's, that's challenging. It's challenging to feel pain and be intimate with it. 
so that it will open. And it's what eventually my family members will have to do, is they'll have to receive and open back up in intimacy if they don't want to keep these stories and flames going. They're going to have to go back and feel the pain that they're avoiding right now. And I don't begrudge them that. We all have our limits. <clears throat> but we can, with practice, extend our range. And you can be very bold about this. The first monk that I worked with in Burma, um, Saida Upandita, he's just known for being uh, a warrior monk. And he really, he had only one thing to say to me, or to generally everybody, but I got it. Just, the only thing lacking is your own courage to meet the experiences you're having. So when I ordained, um, one of the things I had to do is go on alms walk, which I loved because it's like I got to go out of the monastery and see parts of Burma. <clears throat> but the first, um, the first day I ordained, <clears throat> I went on this walk, and they were re-graveling this road with crushed rock, and there were like maybe 20 piles of this of these crushed rock every hundred feet. And it meant that every day I would sp I would have to walk another hundred feet on freshly crushed rock with my feet. And it was really painful. <clears throat> so I went to him and I tried to figure out some way I could avoid that situation. You know, like, oh, I'm a new monk and my feet are so tender. <laughs> yeah, 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 in the West, we're, you know, we're really wimps about spirituality. So I go, oh, yeah, whatever. But <clears throat> uh, it's also really painful and it feels painful the rest of the day. And I don't practice as well because I can feel the pain. And so maybe there's some way I can avoid the situation. And... It's to support my practice, of course, because that's really what I'm doing. I'm not trying to avoid pain because that would be you know, not worthy of the ordination, but uh, maybe there's some way around that. And he's like, um, you should rise, raise your mindfulness up to the experience. Don't lower your experience to your mindfulness. I'm like, ah, okay. And there are hundreds of times that's what he said to me. There are other things to do. I mean, there actually are other things you can do, but it was encouraging for him that he had this one response. Raise your mindfulness up to the experiences you're having. Don't struggle with experiences to lower them to your level of mindfulness. And so I was able to extend my range into phenomenal areas <clears throat> that I hadn't been to before. I was able to invest in my feet and all that I could feel. And when I could feel the sharp rock, then I appreciated so much uh, the soft sand that would come after that. And I appreciate the feeling of wood and the feeling of wood warm by the sun, and then walking on a shadowy spot and feeling how cold it was. And the crushed rock was a place I had to pay attention or I would suffer. But I didn't have to pay attention on the wood because it was just some benign experience. But when I invested into opening up to the unpleasant experiences, I could then feel everything. And my feet became a beautiful place to actually have awake because I could feel so much of the ground. And that was that was almost completely his teaching, is raise your openness, raise your awareness up to the experience you're having and be courageous about that. So that's one thing you can do, it's sort of the warrior practice of mindfulness. Is just, it's very straight and you just take life as it comes and you open up before you respond. And then there are, there are other schools <laughs> and there are other wisdoms at play. Um, about how to go through this bottom cycle uh, with care. So one is just to be more courageous and not resist. If you feel like you've entrenched your views, try to soften them, get other points of view and loosen up where you feel like your mind's tight. 
soften your sense of identity, to allow for uh, a better fit onto the life you're having, uh, not be reactive, not be harmful with your actions. You can go through mindfully and feel what it's like to be resistant, and that will keep the resistance soft. And you can feel what's below the resistance and accept that. And then you're back in the mindfulness cycle. You can feel what it's like to be entrenched, and it's actually painful to be so right. I am so right, but it's so painful to be this right because I'm actually contracted in my point of view. When I was a high school student, um, I got to work with this guy who was um, a big stoner, and it was, um, it was like in his 50s or something like that. <clears throat> and he used to annoy me so much. I was so right. And he was so wrong, but he wasn't suffering. I was. So I worked next to him. I remember this one time he said, you know what I don't get? I don't get the moon. And it's like, one day it's here, one day it's there. It's full and it's like half moon. Like, nobody knows what's going to happen next with the moon. And I was like, I'm a physics student. I actually know quite well what's going to happen with the moon. I study this. I know exactly why it's a half moon, why it's a whole moon. I can track it very, I can tell you why it's going to be, and I can tell you where it's going to be for the next 300 years. It's, this is quite known. He's like, yeah, I don't know about that. I don't know about those theories. I mean, like, it just seems to me when I look at the moon, I never know where it's going to be. <laughs> well, you're not actually studying it. You're just sort of every now and then looking at it. But if you, it's actually quite reliable where it's going to be. It's like, yeah, I don't find it reliable. It's like, oh, my God. We got this one. We landed on it. This is not a mystery. There are mysteries, and this ain't one of them. But I was so right, and I was so pissed off that he wouldn't, like, drop his view, and that he wouldn't so readily take my view, because I was so right. And I looked at his way of living, and it was, he was filled with a sense of mystery. Like, ordinary things would just, like, delight him, and he couldn't understand them. And he walked around quite happy, and in kind of a deluded happiness. And I was livid. And I watched him, and was just like, I gotta crack this guy. <laughs> I gotta wake him up, because like, these things are not mysteries. And I just would argue in my mind, I was so right, and I was suffering so much. So it's not about being right, it's not about being correct. Are you entrenched and invested in your views? And if you are, even if they're right, you're setting yourself up for suffering. And if you feel into it, there's suffering in that righteousness. It pits you against people. It pits you against... I thought I was on the side of reality, but he's part of reality, right? The moon's reality, but so is he. I was on the side of the moon. Against him, I was the one suffering. Maybe the last thing to say in this is that one of the benefits of practicing here at Spirit Rock and in the West is that we actually can bring in Western therapy, Western psychology. And there actually is, from a Western point of view, something to balance out the, um, the Asian Buddhist point of view, is that sometimes we have rigid selves for a reason. And you don't necessarily want to dismantle haphazardly your sense of self, because some selves are there guarding really traumatic material. And so sometimes that monk Upandita, his approach of just going in there like a warrior, you can charge into very sensitive territory and attack the constructions of self there, dismantle them, and then you actually don't have mindfulness that can meet the experience, and you can get quite lost. 
And usually if people do aggressive practice, which means trying to cut down your sleep and challenge your thought process with this type of, um, I can't think of another word, a type of aggression of attitude, you can destabilize your sense of self and it doesn't lead to freedom. It leads to a type of disorientation. So be courageous, go in and challenge habits and patterns. But the ones that are very tenacious don't need dynamite. They need patience. And this is some of the beautiful benefit of having Western uh, depth of understanding of psychological development, of seeing where your sense of self was beautifully constructed and where there are some things uh, hanging over from your past. Getting a sense of how much you need that structure momentarily to hold your life together so that as you shift and open to a more free sense of self, that you don't destabilize your life uh, too radically by being too assertive here. And that's what's beautiful about working with some of the teachers here is that they can, they can tell when someone's going at it too, with too much drive. And you, you, you can do it. It's not that, it doesn't happen that often, but it's possible to destabilize the thing that's holding your world together. And if you do that gently, you can allow it to shift. It's sort of like um, remaking your house. <clears throat> Let's say you have a house that's falling apart. You want to go in there and do good work and kind of shore up what needs to be shored up and change what's already uh, fallen apart. But if you go in there and the first thing you do is you just tear apart the basement, everything is going to fall down. And so if you want to do deep, deep, deep work, uh, it takes care. It takes persistent care to challenge these patterns and habits um, in a way that allows them to shift and then things go back together again. And you, it's, you can keep shifting and adapting uh, your sense of self. And bit by bit you gain ground. And this is some of the beautiful meeting of East and West um, and what, we, what both sides know. But when they're well blended, they, uh, they're quite powerful at changing habits and patterns, the suffering we cause ourselves, um, and this increasing sense of well-being. That's a lot of the, the genius that's being cultivated here. So with that, um, I wanted to open up to uh, questions. There's not a lot of time, but just even to have one or two questions. Um, probably just have time for one. But then I would stay a little bit um, if people had questions about this. So any questions that arise about this that you want to ask? Yeah. On your chart under the mind, it's mind slash heart. Yeah. You haven't mentioned heart. I know. It's <clears throat> so the question was about um, mind and heart in this. And <clears throat> when the, in Asia, the word they have for mind is, is chitta, C-H-I-T-T-A. And when they talk about chitta, they point here. They point to their chest. This is where chitta is. This is where chaos is. <laughs> but you have to kind of know the chaos and comb it out. But the real root of, of consciousness, the real root of mindfulness, is the heart. When we translate into English, we haven't quite gotten to a place with uh, our terminology to just substitute heart for everything that is mind, because we don't often talk about um, focusing our heart 
and whether our heart is sleepy and our heart is wakeful and our heart is agitated, it's not quite the language of the culture yet. So we often use the word mind. Unfortunately, that does have us drift up again to think that this practice is one that's very uh, cognitive, that's very mind-oriented up in our intellect. Um, but when fully opened, not only is the heart included, the entire body is included, the entire nervous system. There are things you can know, not conceptually, but you can have immediate visceral responses in your feet to what you're experiencing. And if you're tuned into your feet, there's information there. There's information all through your body. There's a knowing that happens all through your body. So you could even put mind, heart, and body here. And that's really what, what's responsive and receiving and relating to your direct experience is what's meant here. I think rather than finding better English words, we'll probably have to learn a few of the, uh, the Pali words. Um, they're, they, they're so much better than the English. Uh, so, but English is where we'll start. Thanks for that question. I'll take one more, actually. wonderful opportunities. What about holding, just holding it? I guess I've been in situations where I take that path. I guess many years ago I worked in a very difficult like, school and hmm. being open to kids who right. were, had totally messed up lives and trying to right. really, and after a while it was like really made it hard for me to be, yeah. That. Yeah, <clears throat> and so the, the question is um, <laughs> how to stay intimate with a very challenging um, experience and what about um, holding something that's difficult and seeing that when, I, when he's done that before, and I know I've done that before, where it hasn't actually led to intimacy. And what I've seen for myself in that is, I'm, is that <clears throat> there's a there's a well-intended, rigid identity of being someone dedicated to doing good that I'm not allowing myself the room to be fully who I am. And that would acknowledge my burnout. And if I can acknowledge that I'm burning out, that burnout shows me that I'm overextended. And I'm overextended because I want to do good. I love this person so much. I, I'm wanting good things for them, and that all seems good, so I can't tell why I'm burning out. And the reason I'm burning out is that there is a type of self under that. And it's, these, are, these are not bad things, but, they, but when you have that underlying identity as someone who's doing good, and we don't acknowledge your limitations, that's part of your fluid self, is of temporary limitation, then you'll suffer, then you'll get lost. But if you have a self-awareness that knows when you're reaching the limit, then the fluid self would stay intimate but take a few steps back. And then you have to deal with the suffering, witnessing it, and that you're not making a difference, but you're not disconnecting. And when you do that, you'll recharge, and then you'll step in fresh again. So <clears throat> that's what I've noticed in intensive situations like that. Yeah. 
So it's it's um it's time to end. It's quarter past. Um, there are a few little things I want to add before the evening closes. The first is that next Monday night, a very dear friend, um, Diana Winston, will be here, and she'll be uh, doing the next Monday night. Next Monday night, there will also be a dinner served up the hill. Um, be helpful if people. Um Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.